This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for the show that brings the magic right to your speakers. Ears up! What's going on, everybody? Ears up! We are back in the studio to talk to you today about World War II. And uh, oddly enough, this was in the news recently. Apparently, someone at the Walt Disney Company tweeted out uh, a, like a promo video, I think, for Tower of Terror. And it was like 1939 oh. was a vibe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people Not a got, good move. Well, people got so bent out of shape about it. And I honestly, I was like, well, I don't understand. I don't get it. I, you know, and then people, oh, well, that's when World War II started. Like, well, lots of things happen. And I just yeah, don't think it was that big of a deal. You're talking about the vibe of that year. It's like saying like, oh, yeah, late 2001 vibes. Heck, yeah. Was, those were some good vibes. No. What happened in late 2001? I saying it right? Yeah, two thousand one, nine eleven. Oh, oh, he no, didn't like, get it. Oh, I mean, okay. okay. I don't know. I just I feel like there's so there's there's lots of stuff that can still go on. There's lots of stuff that can still be celebrated. But around... You don't celebrate the vibe of a year that the war started. Well, out of context, no. But in the context of like of of the the video that accompanied the tweet, I feel like it's fine. I don't know. I just I think that it was people were a little too touchy about it. I think they could have said nineteen thirty seven or. That that tower vibe. Those tower vibes would well, have been but, better. I mean, I, I guess if the tower takes place in 1939, if that's when it's set, then I mean, then you, what are you going to do? You can't but get do live. But do we know it. that? Does, is that documented anywhere? I don't know. But then, See, the then thing. why? I, I then think why? They were just trying to be cool. I feel like it has to be that year because otherwise, why would they pick that year? I don't know. A lot happened. I, I just I don't know. I don't. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But whatever. That's just me. Now on, we can't celebrate any year that there was a war. That's just the that's that's well, the rule. You just don't want those vibes. Does anybody want the vibe? Those vibes. It's not even they're not if it was celebrating that decade or something like that's different. But like celebrating the vibes. Of well, that's what I'm that saying is different. But within the context of the video that they yeah. had with the accompanying images, I think it's fine. I don't know. That's just me. That's why I'm not in marketing. I guess. I mean, I am, but not really, sort of, kind of. Anyway, that, that Twitter guy probably wasn't in marketing either. Yeah, pro- probably not very long. But let's all <laughs> let's all never forget one thing that this happened under Bob Iger. So big <gasps> major guffaw or gaff or whatever um, on Bob Iger's watch already. Already, he's just screwing up. Well, so. I'm going to play Jason, and I'm sure that that every tweet 
runs runs by his desk before it happens. I mean, so. if if people are going to want to, you know, string up Chapek for something that he doesn't have control over, I feel like it's only right. You know what I mean? Well, anyway, whatever. We have a good show for you because I did a bunch of research on Disney, the Disney Studios and their involvement in World War II. At least what they did on the home front, you know, uh, we all sort of know that they did, you know, a couple of shorts here and there or whatever, but I thought I'd dig into it a little bit and see the history of the studio, why they did what they did, um, you know, kind of the vibe. I don't want to offend anybody, but the vibe of the mid 40s in the Walt Disney Studio. I think it's going to be cool. And I have some images of some corresponding images to show you as well. I have a couple of video clips to play and uh, stuff like that. So it should be fun. All right. I'm excited about it. It was weird, man. It was a weird time. Um, these shorts that Disney did were kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I don't know, I guess a little cringy through today's lens. Yeah. If you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum, there's a lot of stuff in there that's historical, but cringy. You're kind of like, weird, oh, yeah. don't smile. Yeah. <laughs> Patriotism back then was, 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 I don't know, in your face. More that it was in your face for for a different reason than than people throw it in your face now. Now you have people with big lifted trucks with ten thousand <laughs> flags flying around, and they think that's patriotism, and it's not. It's just symbolism. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I don't know. It's it's weird. It's funky. But uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll dig into it. But before we do, of course, I want to thank Concierge, who is our official travel partner. If you're looking to go to the parks, uh, Disney World or uh, Disneyland, or you're going on a Disney cruise. Or heck, if you're just going to L.A. or, you know, any point in between, hit up Concierge or go to Concierge.com and let them help you plan your vacation. Actually, they'll probably just plan it for you. Just say, look, I want to be here between these dates and they'll just take care of everything. Don't worry about it. They'll uh, they'll tip your wait staff at all your restaurants for you. That's free of charge, I think. Right, Eric? I think they'll tip your housekeeping services, too. That's free of charge, too. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll advise you. No, no, you got to leave more than two dollars. <laughs> yeah, leave more than change. <laughs> Don't leave pocket change. Yeah. That's insulting. Yeah, get right in there with a shrapnel. Get out. Um, yeah, but anyway, hit up concierge.com. They're your Disney experts. So if you want to go to Disneyland, Disney World, uh, that's their that's their pocket. That's where they they live. They can help you go anywhere else that you want to, but they mainly live at uh, Disneyland and Disney World, which is nice. It's a nice place to live at. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. People seem to like it. Yeah. Bev is not here today. Bev is a little uh, sicky person. She has like the flu that's running around her. She swears up and down it's not COVID, but I'm never going to believe that. But uh, yeah, so she has the flu and um, she's not here. And that's fine. We'll carry on. We're going to soldier on. We're going to be patriotic about the show and, uh, and, and continue on, even though we're down a man. We can do it. Watch. Yeah, we can Watch. do it. Hi. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then, hey, what's yeah, going and then on? Don't forget to rub your hands together like sandpaper for four <laughs> minutes and then yawn into the microphone for 12. And then <laughs> I don't have any ice. Say thanks. For the show, it was fun. <laughs> now, I'd say like she's going to be upset, but she doesn't listen to this. So, so Brian in chat is always coming to my defense. Oh my god! He says the story of the Tower of Terror ride is based on the events of ten thirty one nineteen thirty nine. So the year is kind of important in that. So yeah, see, I don't know, man. I feel like we don't need to be so sensitive about when World War Two started. I really don't. I don't think so. Especially because it didn't really matter because we didn't even enter it until 1941. So who cares, right? Some Europeans are having a conflict and whatever. Nothing to do with me. Yeah. What what do we care about those guys? Nothing to do with us yet. I mean, sort of. Anyway, we'll get into it. 
Um, I think that's it. I think that's all for the announcements or the welcome or whatever. And I think let's just dig into the show, huh? I'm excited. You've been working on this for months. I have. It'll be a good one. Most recently in the last couple of days, but uh, I had it. I had it prepped and planned and ready. And, uh, you know, today, uh, yesterday was uh, today's the 8th of December. And yesterday was Pearl Harbor Day. And that Ah. was sort of why I wanted to do it uh, now. Okay. So I'm going to put out a tweet. That's those December 7th vibes and everyone's going to cancel me. Yeah. 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 Okay. So just don't right, do that. Rightly so. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I would deserve it if I was very specific about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let's take a quick break first. We're going to take a fast break. We're going to come right back. And we're going to learn about the Walt Disney Studios and World War II. Hang on. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to the show that's more fun than waiting in line for Peter Pan on a hot August Anaheim day. Ears up. Okay, thanks for hanging around, everybody. All right, let's dig right into the show here. Walt once called the World War II... I'm underwater suddenly. Walt once called the World War II era... Walt once called the World War II era, quote, the toughest period of my whole life. Disney was, at this time of the late 1930s, on the brink of financial collapse, which we sort of forget that Walt almost went bankrupt several times over his life, and this was no different. Snow White was his first huge hit, but it had also cost $1.5 million to make at a time when money was already tight for the studio. All of the profits from that film were used to pay off debts or pumped back into other projects like Pinocchio and Fantasia and Dumbo. Pinocchio was a box office stinker at the time, paving the way for Fantasia to somehow do worse. (laughs) Fantasia cost $2.8 million to make and only recovered about $325,000 at the box office. Yikes. Wow. Yeah, that's a big yikes, man. In 1939, no one panicked. The European film market was thrown into chaos as World War II broke out. Before World War I, Germany had been the world's second largest market for films. And when Hitler took power in the early 1930s, he started banning American films from Germany. So that market was already hitting Disney hard in the pocketbook, and the reduction of flow of cash from Germany wasn't helping. America was still recovering financially from the Great Depression, which saw the American film audience shrink from 110 million to about 60 million people, which is kind of wild when you consider like the unemployment rate during the Great Depression was like 23 percent. But you still had half the uh, the going you know, theater audience. People were saving up for weeks to go just to the movies. Yeah, to sort of escape, uh, you know, yeah, like escape do the something. Great Depression. So all of this stuff, you got to do something, right? Um, you got the war, you know, hitting your, your, uh, your, your foreign, um, you know, pocketbook and you got the domestic pocketbook, not really doing well either. It's a tough time for all movie studios, but especially for Disney in September of 1939, world war II had begun 
A year later, in September of 1940, the U.S. began supplying the Allies with arms through the Lend-Lease program that supplied England, China, Russia, and other anti-fascist countries of Europe with munitions, which also helped mark the end of the effects of the Great Depression, honestly. The Disney company went public in 1940, selling stock in order to try and curb some of the debt. The first offering was 155,000 preferred shares at $25 each and 600,000 shares of common stock at five bucks a share. Even though the country was in the tail end of the Great Depression and the threat of war was looming, Disney shares sold out by the end of the day. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The end of the day. The $9 million that came in <laughs> was a needed boost and helped to pay for the new Burbank studio. Part of it, anyway. It also inadvertently helped fuel the Disney animators strike, as many of Walt's staff members felt that they should share in the newfound riches. And I want to do a whole show on the animator strike because it's pretty wild. Like there were reports of the pay structure was so weird and loose that you some some a quote from an animator back then was like, you could be sitting next to someone and doing the same exact work. And the difference in your wages would be 20 bucks. Wow. A week. On either side, you could be making 20 bucks more. They could be making 20 bucks less. You just didn't know. It was just how they negotiated or. I think it's just what Walt felt like they were arbitrary. Yeah. I'm I'm in the middle of a book called the Disney revolt um, by Jake Friedman. It came out not too long ago. It's really interesting. And it it goes deep on, on this entire thing. Uh, It's, it's all on the animator Mm. strike and. Oh, sounds like you yeah, you're volunteering like, to do the show. No, that's what oh, I was going to say. <laughs> sounds like it's your show. Great. Yeah, yeah. I got to read. Thanks, oh, yeah. I appreciate that, man. It's going to be a second January show. Oh, awesome. good. Right. <laughs> We're recording next week for the second January show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dumbo came out in 1941, but ate up about half of the money made from Snow White. Bambi was due out in 1942, and at the time, Walt knew he had to stop making full-length films as long as the European market was restricted in most cases and even closed down in places like France, which obviously limited the return on these films. Many theaters weren't open any longer due to the advancing German forces, like in France. That's why they were shut down, right? The invasion of Germany sort of like tends to, you know, Mm. squash the film market. I don't know. It was very weird. (laughs) Walt was in the red so deep that the Bank of America, who had provided loans for them for years, was considering withholding funds from the studio until they paid their debts back. Like, this was a dark, dark time for the studio. Wow. Since the mid-1930s, the German propaganda machine has been spinning up, and by the 1940s, it was in full effect. The U.S. knew that they had to combat the Nazis not only on the battlefield, but on the information front as well. Who better to help focus the minds of the Americans than the person who already held a pretty firm grip on them in the first place. But as patriotic as Walt was, he didn't really want to get into the propaganda game. He did, however, (laughs) need money. (laughs) So he took his first contract job producing a a short film for their neighbors in Burbank, Lockheed Martin, who makes, you know, uh, airplanes and missiles and all sorts of stuff. The training film short was titled Four Methods of Flush Riveting. And it's about as exciting as you imagine. You, right. want to, uh, you want to see a little bit of it? Yes. All right. A third method used for riveting of slightly heavier gauges than in the last method involves a separate dumpling of the sheets. Again, we start by drilling our number 30 hole. 
The sheets are then disassembled and machine dimpled separately on the squeezer. Note the angle of the dimpling tools. The dimpling punch for the top sheet has an angle of 100 degrees, the same as the rivet head. The dimpling die has an angle of 110 degrees. The dimpling punch for the bottom. <laughs> I don't know if it's the guy's voice, but I was actually kind of like, I, I was like, oh, I'm learning. You can learn a thing or two. Riveting. Yeah, it was very riveting. <laughs> <laughs> Upon the squeezer. Like they have all these like, you know, the, the rivets and it's very uh, precise and it's all. Th and then they call the thing the squeezer. The squeezer. That was my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love his deep breaths between sentences. <laughs> yeah. And the tool. It's almost sinister. I think what Mr. P should do is take clips of this and play out on his stream every now and then. Yeah. That'd be very funny. Um, but yeah, it's very boring, very dry. But uh, so for those of you who aren't watching this, uh, go look at the, these are all on YouTube. Go check them out. Four methods of flush riveting. And it's just animating, you know, rivets going in and whatever. But that's what Disney was, was doing for Lockheed at the time. They were just doing these little animations and there was a training video training for videos, the, yeah. for the new, for the new hires, which was uh, steadily ramping up because we weren't in the war just yet, but we were, like I said, selling stuff to the allies. So needed more jobs, needed more training. What came out of this sleepy little short was, uh, by chance, a partnership with the Canadian government. A Canadian filmmaker named John Grierson somehow saw this and asked Walt to make cartoons for the Canadian military. He agreed, and that resulted in four shorts ranging in topics from war saving certificates, which were the Canadian version of U.S. war bonds, to one about anti-tank guns being used to stop a fictional Hitler from invading a small Canadian town. The townsfolk of this film were uh, on the lookout, and after defeating the Nazis, Hitler is sent to hell, where the devil gets annoyed hearing Hitler complain that he couldn't win because the town had anti-tank guns. The 21-minute short film ends with a soldier kissing his anti-tank gun and then getting shamed by the narrator. It's just wild. But also, check it 21 out. 21 minutes, like the way you were describing it, I was like, okay, yeah, you know, like... Two, three minutes. Yeah, shorts back then were like eight to 20 minutes, dude. Yeah, it's a short film. Um, but, you know, pretty interesting. So that was really his first sort of government film was was for the Canadian government. Okay. Yeah. Well, as we know, um, the devil rejected Hitler and sent him back up and put him in a pocket watch. And then uh, Dean Winchester killed him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I literally watched that episode last night. <laughs> I thought it was weird that, like, the Canadians, the Canadians were worried that the Germans were going to invade them. With tanks. <laughs> With tanks. But yeah. no, they had these tank busted <laughs> rifles and they were and this like okay. little cartoon soldier's like in bed and he moves the covers and his big log gun, he kisses it, and the neighbor's like, Well, that's a little fresh or whatever he says. Well, like I know nothing about geography or history, but does it have I mean Don't know much of <laughs> I mean I don't. Yeah, okay. Um but there is there's French Canadians. So like, yeah. is that why? Because the war was with France and they're French Canadian. Um, I mean, who there's knows? There's a tie in maybe. Maybe. Hard to say. Okay. Good news traveled fast. And soon the U.S. government was offering contracts to Disney to produce similar content for various agencies over the next several years. You had uh, a, a film called The Winged Scourge. Scourge. About mosquitoes carrying malaria. And food will win the war for the Department of Agriculture. In the Winged Scourge, we see the seven dwarves combating these little winged creatures in all their charming glory. And of course, 
<laughs> I got a clip for you. Hold on. I mean, they already have them animated. Why not? Why well, not use their own characters? Right. Enjoying the peace and plenty of the home he's worked so hard to build, this man is healthy and happy. Little does he suspect he's to be the victim of this bloodthirsty vampire. Again, saliva is injected to make penetration easy. Hold on. But this time, the saliva contains malaria parasites, which enter the bloodstream. She dines on healthy blood, and in payment, leaves the chills and fever of malaria. This is my worst fear. <laughs> in all probability, this man will not die. But neither will he truly be alive. For he'll be continually in poor health, unable to work and keep up his farm. This is depressing. Slowly he will lose all he has worked for. His crops will rot no. in the fields. His buildings and fences fall into disrepair. Because of malaria. Because of malaria. Right. And so, uh, first of all, it's very dark. So, of course, if you're just listening, um, it's a you know man on his porch, his wraparound porch, gazing out into his farmland. And then after he gets malaria, he doesn't wow. die, but like everything is dark. The orchards are broken. Everything's in disrepair. It's falling apart. It's it's yeah. terrifying, but it also looks very like sort of classic Disney. It really does. It yeah. looks like Snow White. Yeah. Well, speaking of Snow White. So this film, from what I can understand, was to be played in like Latin America because that's where they ha we don't have malaria up here. Right. <laughs> um, and then this is sort of teaching people how to clear the land for to get rid of mosquitoes, right? It's like basically standing water, like get rid of standing water. So there's a place where like uh, Sleepy is digging a trench to like drain out the standing water and Doc is doing something or whatever. Okay. Um, yeah. So here's, here's a little portion mm. of that. Spraying oil on the water is a sure way of killing mosquito larvae of all kinds. The oil enters the breathing tube oil on the and promptly kills the wiggler. Jeez. Those are wigglers, Dopey. Give them the oil treatment. That'll kill them. Just squirts oil in this cup of water. Poor wiggler. <laughs> Isn't that worse to put like oil on? Uh, I would think so, man. I mean, but I guess we've learned since then. But I don't know. I mean, what are you going to do? Either die of malaria or just not be able to drink the water. I mean, I think feel like it's just standing water where it's not really drinking water. Yeah. So you just pour oil into it and. They suffocate and then huh. that's it. I guess. Too much oil on the water. Just set it ablaze. What is that? A boy, Dopey. That's oil. Give it the fire treatment. <laughs> Watch it burn. <laughs> then came December 7th, 1941. At 7.48 a.m. Hawaii time, the Navy base at Pearl Harbor near Honolulu in the territory of Hawaii, which was not yet a state at this point, was blindsided by a Japanese attack that left 2,403 soldiers dead and 1,143 wounded. Over two waves of attack, the Japanese forces threw their weight at the base, leveling buildings, battleships, and anything that they could target. The majority of the sailors killed here were junior officers, averaging about 17 or 18 years old. In just 90 minutes, Japan had altered the course of history forever. Pearl Harbor was the main piece in a larger operation to construct a pre preemptive attack planned by Japan, and simultaneous attacks were carried out over the course of several hours that day, including attacks on U.S. and British-held positions in the Philippines, Guam, Wake Island, and Hong Kong. While the U.S. wasn't exactly neutral in the war at this point, as we were supplying weapons to the Allies, 
This preemptive attack was technically considered a war crime, as it happened without a formal declaration of war from Japan or without explicit warning. Why would you give somebody warning if you're going to? I don't know. I think it's weird that that war has rules. Right. I mean, what do they care? Who made up those? Where are they written down? Geneva Convention, I think. I don't know what that is. I don't know either. Something about, you know, (laughs) sausages or something. I don't know. Intel of a third possible wave was floating around intelligence circles, and the U.S. was not going to be caught sleeping again, literally. On December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor, the Disney company received a phone call from Washington with the message that 500 troops from an anti-aircraft unit would be stationed at the Burbank Studios that day. About 700 soldiers ended up arriving, complete with vehicles, camouflage, communication setups, and about 3 million rounds of ammunition. The government told Disney that they needed to use the studio location as a defense station to protect a nearby military contractor, Lockheed Martin. Half of the property was used as anti-aircraft protection, while Disney artists produced cartoons, handbooks, airplane art, and other media for the U.S. government, despite the strict anti-propaganda stance Walt held. Animators were forced to reduce their office sizes and share spaces so the soldiers could have room to sleep, eat, and maintain their equipment. In addition to the soldiers, there were also military police sent to the studio to guard the entrances to the Burbank location. As an added security feature, the military installed a fingerprint ID system that even Roy and Walt had to participate in. Imagine asking Walt Disney for his fingerprint. Right. Also, I don't even know how that worked in 1941. Like, what does it even mean? But, you know, whatever. But the government contracts were paying the bill, so Walt had no choice but to make the most of it. The animators tried their best to make the soldiers feel welcome at the studio by holding small art sales to fundraise money for them, and by having three separate blood drives on the property so that everyone working there could donate blood, even Walt himself. The artists at the studios even made a scrim out of balsa wood painted to look like rolling hills and farmland in order to camouflage any grounded aircraft while the military worked on it. Hmm. Kind of neat. Yeah. I do have some footage of that, actually, of uh, of the military on the Disney studios. It's very, very short, but I'd never seen it before. I didn't actually really even know that that film existed of it. There's no sound, though. So, oh. <laughs> um, it's good radio. Yeah. Visuals only. It was just a, literally this could be anywhere. There's like a yeah. bunch of soldiers, a bunch of people walking around. And then now this is in color and there's. Just a, a a lot of soldiers marching around, and that is very clearly yeah. the Disney right. Animation Studios in Burbank. They're just right Definitely. down the streets. And uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. wow, they're on wow. Disney Avenue, you know, right there, and it's uh, pretty wild, man. And then here's Walt riding a bike with one of his kids, I assume, on the handlebars, just you know, hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah, just riding bikes around the. Uh, like around it's the such studio. a serious situation, and then he's riding bikes. Yeah, and then one of the girls is like holding uh, one of the soldiers' helmets. He's put, she's putting it on, <laughs> and while he's just standing there. But his uniform is also like too small. That was Walt in uniform. No, oh, oh, just one of the soldiers. And oh. that uh, there's a just a still photo that says the searchlights leaving the uh, leaving for the Disney Studios. Mm. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. Weird stuff, man. <laughs> Walt Disney's first government contract in the early days of the U.S. involvement in the war was with the U.S. Navy. The Navy first requested 90,000 feet of film to be ready in three months. That would help to educate soldiers on navigation tactics, aircraft and naval identification, and other basic knowledge. This was a shock for Disney as he was used to creating 27,000 feet of film in a year, 
Oh, geez. And they wanted 90,000 in three months. So Walt decided that these productions didn't really need to look like a Walt Disney finished film and they could relax the reins a bit, producing the animations on black and white 35 millimeter film. I would think not only could they relax them, they would need right. to. They would need like to. That's yeah, impossible. Right. I say, uh, you know, black and white 35 millimeter film. But even though it would have been cheaper to use the 16 millimeter film, the rudimentary animations the studio would have time to produce would be better suited on the 35 millimeter stock. Walt had a reputation to uphold, after all. So the stock's a little bit more pricey, but it would look better, even though it's going to be cheaper. And, you know, that's just what happens. It's a give and take. Exactly. Uh, It was probably quite a move for these animators, having just finished Pinocchio and Fantasia, and then suddenly producing these gray, lifeless, emotionless training films for the military. That's wild to me. I wonder if they felt good about it, though, because, like... Oh, I got I got a clip for it, actually. Oh, well, I'll show it later. Yeah, patriotism is like such a like during war. It's such a big thing. I mean, I think they they felt, you know, like they were doing their job. They're doing their their role, you know, for the country. But it was also like, you know, we've talked about how creative the team is and they're solving problems and they're really trying to get the animation right. And they're spending thousands of hours and hundreds of hours inking and painting and whatever. But now they don't have to do it. It's like, oh, I can just. Okay, yeah, we'll just do this, and that's fine. So it, it's just sort of like a, a different shift. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. The animations were assigned to Thor Putnam, Yale Gracie, and Bruce Bushman, among others, as part of Animation Unit 2A, which was the first training film unit established by Walt at the studio. Rounding up the team was Erin Verity, assistant director on the series, and Carl Nader, the production coordinator for the Military Educational Films Unit. Apparently, Nader was so engaged engaged with these training films that he continued doing educational films at the studio after the war eventually ended, being named president of Walt Disney Educational Materials Company in 1969. So this really sort of set him on a path. That's yeah, fun. good for him. Disney contributed animations to the seven-part film series Prelude to War. And I do have that uh, clippy for you guys. So this will give you a good uh, feel for what these animations actually looked like. Okay. I mean, I use animations loosely. I mean, they technically are animated, but... Just what was it made us change our way of living overnight? What turned our resources, our machines, our whole nation into one vast arsenal, producing more and more weapons of war instead of the old materials of peace? Put us into uniform, ready to engage the enemy on every continent and every ocean. What are these two worlds of which Mr. Wallace spoke? The free and the slave. Let's take the free world first. Our world. How did it become free? Only through a long and unceasing struggle inspired by men of vision. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. it's, it's interesting. It's almost like it's like um like some of them were like still images, but with a moving, transparent United States over it yes. to make it look like it was animated. But it wasn't 
some of it it looked like wasn't even really animated it's just i don't know it's funny because what what you see there could be done probably now in like canva in like oh easily 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah but then disney was you know at oh, yeah. the the top of that with a multi-layered camera they could easily totally. do that and so they just basically for these animations they did maps and animated maps and then at the end there where he's like um uh, there's two worlds and then there was literally two earths on two. the screen and one was light and one was dark and then he goes on to say the the free world and the slave world. And it's like, oh, God. But anyway, that 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 happened. That's part of the seven part film series Prelude to War produced by Think. I'm having a hard time tonight. I don't know. A little bit. I, I'm like rushing through it, I guess. I don't understand. Produced by Frank Capra, probably best known for directing It's a Wonderful Life. The Prelude oh. to War series was commissioned by the Office of War Information and meant to educate new soldiers on the necessity of the U.S. involvement in World War II. The Disney team provided the animated elements throughout, like maps, drawings of the Earth, etc. All in all, 21 of these educational films were contributed to by Disney. Many apparently are uncredited, but most are available online and are honestly a great window into the American propaganda machine of the early 1940s. The Disney Company also produced animations for about 39 training video uh, training films in 1943 alone. Wow. With titles like Rules of the Nautical Road, U.S. Navy Identification, Weft and Warships, which is Weft is an acronym for Wings, Engine, Fuselage, and Tail. Did this whole thing. It's like a three-point identification system for how other pilots can recognize airplanes. Oh. Or oh, okay. ships or whatever, right? Okay. Um, and who could forget the classic, the absolute steaming banger aircraft production process series, Blanking and Punching. Okay. So die, more more mechanical die stuff. Okay. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In addition to helping out with the indoctrination of new recruits, Disney was asked to also create many short cartoons. The government offered him $90,000 to make about 20 shorts at $4,500 per short. That was more money than Disney typically made for a short film. I've seen reports on the numbers being more like 80,000 or 35 films. So don't take my word as gospel on this, but I've seen more of the 90, 20 version than, um, you know, than not, but apparently things are a little sketchy here. Okay. Another way Walt was helping the war effort was by designing and drawing the insignias of the various units within the U.S. military, over 1,300 in total. Insignias are like the mascot of the unit, right? They fly on flags, they're painted on the sides of airplanes and ships, stitched into patches and sewn onto hats. Their symbols were each designed with the specific unit in mind. The the written requests may have began in 1941 when Lieutenant E.S. Caldwell, then of the U.S. Naval Operations in Washington, wrote to Walt Disney asking for an emblem emblem for the fleet of PT or patrol torpedo boats. Disney responded within days with the design of a mosquito on a torpedo insignia. The image created by Hank Porter of a little mosquito streaking through the water with a sailor's head on his head, holding a torpedo between its many legs made such a hit that every torpedo boat in the fleet soon had a Disney mosquito. Wow, mosquitoes, man. I know, it's you can't, a, get, rid of, can't get away theme. from them. Yeah. <laughs> Others soon followed. For example, the Disney designed logo for the Aviation Repair Unit 1 comes from the 1933 Silly Symphony Disney short, Three Little Pigs. Animators took Practical Pig and repurposed him as an aircraft repair pig. 
<laughs> Sitting atop a smaller plane that's leaking oil, Practical Pig hammers away at the engine. Another character from a silly symphony made its way onto a logo, but this time for the USS Baya, a Ballo class submarine launched and commissioned in 1944. From August 23rd, 1944 to July 25th, 1945, the ship completed five patrols in the South China Sea, Gulf of Siam, the Java Sea, and the Philippine Sea. During this time, it sank four Japanese vessels. Fittingly, the ship's insignia features a grizzly bear from the Silly Symphony's short wearing a Navy Dixie cup, which is that hat. Okay. The Navy had the white hat. Well, I didn't know it was called a Dixie cup and tearing apart a <laughs> Japanese flag. Okay. Jeez. So I do have, I do have those. I'll show you guys. Um, Wars back then <laughs> were really weird. Yeah. And I'll get into like some of that, but uh, here's the first one. This is the mosquito one. It's very cute and also rudimentary, but also, you know, kind of cheeky. I don't know. Okay. There's literally mosquito hauling i mean it's, it's, it's what it is but it's very like i said very rudimentary it's not really detailed or anything yeah not super disney style no not no, really not at all yeah yeah it's kind of strange it's not at all what i expected yeah no, there's this practical. is what I expected. here's practical pig <laughs> and it's literally i mean this is a a, a disney <laughs> a disney picture of one of the three little pigs and um you know he's hammering away at that little airplane man trying to get it trying to get it back up in the air Looks more like the type of airplane you ride at a grocery store. <laughs> it does. Yeah, absolutely. And then here's the one with uh, the bear tearing the Japanese flag apart. And that's a little more detailed. You know yeah. what I mean? And I think I have a couple others in here, too, that just seem pretty cool. Um, so, like, this guy, this little mouse on top of, he's literally this, like, doofy-looking mouse. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's <laughs> sitting on top of a bunch of balloons over the sea, and he's holding a torpedo. And I guess the story behind the airship patrol squadron was that, like these ships were slower than airplanes, so they were better for spotting enemy ships. Okay. So this was their insignia was a slow moving mouse to drop bombs rather than like a fast moving animal. Just, you know what I mean? That's what I mean. Like when, when they did the insignias, they really tried to capture the, the sort of vibe, which is the word of the day yeah. um, of the actual unit itself. Not sure I fully understand this one, but it's cute. Uh, that's all you got to know. Okay. Yeah, it's just cute. He'll drop a bomb on you. Yeah. Speaking of cute, this is Donald. This is for the USS. Well, once I move the friggin' Cytheria, <laughs> there it is. And apparently, the USS Cytheria used to be like a private yacht, and it was commissioned, like went into service to like you know ship goods and stuff to other to other um, battleships and stuff like that. It wasn't actually like a real, uh, it, it didn't begin its life as a, uh, as a, a warship, right? It was, it was a luxury yacht, I guess. Hmm. So okay. Donald yeah. is on this surfboard or a, bo- a boogie board and he's literally just playing a ukulele, ukulele just hanging out, yeah. surfing, you know, he's but having a great time. he has the Dixie cup on. Oh, he does. Yeah. So he's sort of like, I don't know. He's living the dream, man. He's <laughs> just hanging out. Wow. Yeah. All right. That to me is very cute. That one is very cute. Yeah. What I can infer as to how this whole process worked was the unit of the military would request the studio to do their insignia, and then the artist would oblige for free. Now, demand was so high that Walt put two animators on the task, Hake Porter and Roy Williams. Eventually, they were joined by George Goper, Bill Justice, Ed Parks, and Van Kaufman. The entire five-man team was devoted to simply illustrating these insignias and unit patches. 
And apparently Hank Porter did most of them. He did like over a thousand, just designed them himself. Mm, okay. But he was sort of like the guy, right? So you guys know how much I like to sort of blah random facts about animators we don't really know about. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, Hank Porter, who in addition to lending his talents to the bulk of these insignias, was also one of the first people to have ever been approved to sign Walt Disney's name for him. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know why that's such a weird fact, but I think it is. It is. It's kind of a big deal. I think so. I, I guess that's important to <laughs> sign his yeah, sure. Yeah, like sign his name on what? I think like write his name on like official Walt Disney. Mm. I don't know. You know. Interesting. Okay. Um, let's see. Bill Justice designed Thumper from Bambi as well as Chip and Dale. He also programmed audio animatronics figures for such Disneyland attractions as Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Mission to Mars, Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, Country Bear Jamboree, and America Sings. Bill once said, quote, one of the most enjoyable Disneyland projects was the Pirates of the Caribbean. Manipulating the figures in each vignette was a multiple challenge. Hmm. Yeah. Kind of neat. I don't know why. Ed Parks, uh, his most distinct artistic flourish for the company was the design for the unique yellow smoke curling out of Corella DeVille's cigarette in 101 Dalmatians. He went on to do extensive animation in Charlotte's Web probably his favorite project with Hanna-Barbera, along with the much earlier Johnny Quest TV series for all you old heads out there. Dang. Another show which bears a large amount of his work is Scooby-Doo. For the first couple seasons, this cat just animated on Scooby-Doo. Huh. Roy Williams was also known as Big Roy, the adult mouseketeer on the original Mickey Mouse Club, and he also designed what is possibly the most iconic piece of merchandise in human history. Mickey ear hats. Whoa, huge. I know, right? The guy responsible. Okay. You said that was that was Big Roy. Big Roy. Oh, there we go. All right. Disney director Jack Kinney once described Roy Williams as a quote Big, fat, balding, hot-headed, unpredictable bastard. Ooh. Which sounds like me. Uh, <laughs> but hugely admired his prolific talent, saying that he could just sit down and grunt out a few pounds of gags as if it were nothing. Grunt out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walt was also providing content to America's allies. While Americans struggled to cope with food shortages and rationing at home, the citizens of the isolated island of nation of Britain suffered even more. In late 1941, Walt Disney had artist Hank Porter design a family of carrots for England's food minister. The January 11th, 1942, New York Times Magazine announced, quote, England has a goodly store of carrots, but carrots are not the staple items of the average English diet. The problem is to sell carrots to the country. And the front of the flyer features an illustration of someone called Carroty George. And the reverse. <laughs> That's awesome had six different carrot recipes. The entire family of Disney-designed carrots included Dr. Carrot, Pop Carrot, and Clara Carrot. They were reproduced on a poster in a recipe booklet and in an extensive newspaper ad campaign. And yes, I have a picture of Carroty George why to are, share with you guys. Why are we so obsessed with, with British people eating carrots? Uh, <laughs> we needed help. They needed help, I guess. I don't know. Huh. Carrot so George. it's literally it's hated carrots. Okay. Yeah, it's a, a, a carrot 
carrying another carrot and um you know he has a monocle because he's british i guess yeah he looks like the the peanut guy he looks like mr peanut a little bit huh yeah (laughs) and it says carroty george says i'll tell you what to do with me and then you flip it over and then there's recipes but he also has carrot shoes like it's sort of the weirdest thing i've ever seen he's also holding a carrot like like it's like a spear yeah here's my uh, here's another child i've harvested eat this child (laughs) Eat my yeah, children. I have two children on my feet, and I will tell you what to do with them. Yeah, but let me tell you first before you eat me, because then I won't have a mouth. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm so delicious. Very odd. The it whole is. carrot thing is really weird to me. I mean, but, I, you know, apparently, you know, the Brits, they were on food rationing. Mm-hmm. They had a bunch of carrots. No one was eating them. They were like almost like a foreign food, I guess, to them. I mean, probably not that extensive, but they needed to yeah, know like, we what don't to like do. these ethnic foods. <laughs> yeah, what's going on here? <laughs> As the war drug on, the studios made films and produced content for every branch of the military, with Disney using up to 90% of his staff to keep up with production. Throughout the duration of the war, Disney produced over 400,000 feet of educational war films, most at cost, which is equal to 68 hours of continuous film. In 1943 alone, 204,000 feet of film was produced. Wow. The other thing that did that the Disney studios became known for was the one thing that Walt had refused to create in the beginning propaganda films. Since they were begin, uh, since they were making these other shorts at cost, the new projects weren't paying the bills the way Walt had expected. So he was kind of over a barrel on this. Eventually he gave in to the then secretary of the treasury, Henry Morgenthau jr. Who was the first one that had taken control over the Walt Disney studios after Pearl Harbor. Although concerned as ever with the wholesomeness of his image, Disney never referred to such films as propaganda, but officially renamed them psychological production. (laughs) Got to spin it. Psychological production. Psychological production. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Sure, I guess. What fascinates me is that somebody got Walt to do something he didn't want to do. That doesn't ever happen. No, because money. Well, yeah. Back in a corner. Yeah, yeah, the the government backed him into a corner. Yeah. According to Walt Disney himself. Okay, now this this sentence, I didn't write this. This is a direct quote from Walt. Oh, no. And this is sort of where you where you get a lot of this. uh, Walt was an anti-Semite stuff from this quote, I think, right here. According to Walt Disney himself, he had been forced to, (laughs) quote, accept that Jew Morgenthau Morgenthau. And was being forced to be used by Morgenthau to, quote, deliver political propaganda films that cashed in on the popularity of that all-American mouse, Mickey. But, you know, remember back in the day, these words were just thrown around. There wasn't really a whole lot of malice behind it. It was just sort of that's what it was. Anti-Semitism was sort of rampant and but not in like a hateful way. Yeah, it's funny because it's just one of those things where he didn't have to say he just could have said his name and gotten the same thing across. But back then you didn't, you didn't say, you didn't do that. You just said, you know, this person's Jewish. Well, then they're forever known as that. You know what I mean? Like you don't, but anyways, I'm going to start calling you that Greek Jason. I think you should. (laughs) Disney also bitterly referred to his cartoon characters at the time as captives who were forced to perform for the Stromboli like Morgenthau. Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which of course is a reference to the uh, puppet master gypsy, uh, you guy from Pinocchio. I'm, I'm curious, why did he have to use his characters for these? Uh, I think that's what that's what Morgenthau wanted. 
is to sort of like, you know, do these propaganda films with the Disney characters and hey, we'll pay you money because I know you need it. Yeah. Yeah. Soften people up. Yeah. That is interesting because that's much more than just helping out the war or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. it's more than just making a propaganda film. It's using your brand yeah. as as a spokesperson as, yeah which you don't you're not in at that point you're not in control of the narrative anymore you're not in control hmm. of the message yeah and could you imagine if they did that now like they would get, <laughs> i mean they would be destroyed oh yeah absolutely but <laughs> back then it helped yeah so it, it is sort of odd because this period in their history is sort of framed as like how patriotic they were but walt clearly did not want to do this yeah Anyway, the move was apparently orchestrated by Secretary Morgenthau to leverage Disney against his will to support the U.S. war effort against the Nazis, contrary to Disney's own personal beliefs. Like Disney's sort of been on record like I don't really I don't really do politics. I don't really get political. I don't want to. It's not our thing. But he was forced to. But guess what? You're gonna. Yeah. And I don't know how true that is if he was like leveraged or whatever. I couldn't really find like super details about it. But. The first Disney film made under these circumstances was called The New Spirit, starring Donald Duck, who at the time was Disney's biggest star. Wow. Yeah. In the cartoon, it's payday, and Donald's being pulled into two different directions about whether to spend his money or save his money to pay his taxes, which, according to the cartoon, will help America win the war. Now, obviously, Donald, who is the typical American good guy, saves his money for his taxes. Wow. That is not something Donald would do. Just FYI. apparently, I don't know. In the, well, I mean, Donald is a sailor. He's, <laughs> he's a Navy man. So I, well, I think he true. would. In this cartoon, well, more go. than some of the others, they lay the message on thick that it is important to help. But these cartoons, however boring the message may be, attracted a wide audience. For example, these films, these short films were seen by over 20 million people over their lifetime. So I do have a little clip of the uh, Donald cartoon. And it's it is like... Whoa, dude. Spread on with a butter knife, baby. <laughs> and show the world that this Yankee Doodle spirit is ours. It's yours. It's ours. Donald with American flags flying in his pupils, yeah. saluting the radio. Yes, there is a new spirit in America. That's right. The spirit of a free people, united again in a common cause to stamp tyranny from the earth. Our very shores have been attacked. (laughs) Your whole country is mobilizing for total war. Your country needs you. (laughs) Are you a picks up every weapon he has? Eager to do your part? Then there's something important you can do. You won't get a medal for doing it. It may mean a sacrifice on your part. But it will be a vital help to your country in this hour of need. Shall I tell you what it is? Shall I? Your income tax. (laughs) Yes, your income tax. I feel the same way. It may not seem important to you, but it is important. Yes, and it's your privilege, not just your duty, but your privilege to help your government by paying your tax and paying it promptly. Oh, what's the big hurry? What's the big hurry? Your country is at war. Your country needs taxes for guns, 
taxes for ships, taxes for democracy, taxes to beat the Axis. I realize it's a little long, but uh, you know, I wanted to. It, I think it's very funny. Curious. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but like, okay. did you have to physically give over your income taxes back then? Like, because aren't they just sort of automatically taken out now? I imagine it was. Eric, you were alive back then, wasn't it? <laughs> was it automatic, or, or do you have to pay it? You have to pay it. Well, it depended on what kind of job you had. <laughs> if you were one of them big Wall Street bankers, <laughs> like my pappy. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I would imagine there was uh, less automation than there is today. I mean, I guess technically you could, because this is why I was like, well, I guess it's kind of how it is now. Like you do opt to give your money to the government. You can not and then just do it all at once. Everything's a choice. Yeah. So, but also income taxes were created to pay for the war. Hmm. And then when the war stopped, the government was like, well, this is working out. It's really working nicely. out fine. <laughs> Let's just keep going. And so, you know, here we are today. Uh, some of the Disney films uh, that he made, you know, these propaganda films included several humorous anti-Nazi shorts, including one called De Fuhrer's Face, which is probably the most popular one, Okay, uh, which it actually went on to win an Oscar in which Donald Duck wow. is a Nazi or he, more importantly, he has a dream that he was a Nazi. Like a swastika wearing Mein Kampf reading, like not like just a Nazi. His character does arc at the end, just so you know, but go ahead and find it on YouTube. It's a trip, man. If you haven't seen DeFuhrer's face yet, it's weird and sort of uncomfortable. And I'd show you clips, but I really kind of feel grossed out about having like the Hitler salute on here. You know what I mean? I just don't want to, I just don't want to do that. So, um, you know, even though it's, it's, yeah, I just, whatever. I, I get that. Yeah. In another short, Donald Duck was recruited into the U.S. Army, facing down Japanese snipers. And yet another short, Minnie Mouse, was setting the example at home in the cartoon Out of the Frying Pan into the Firing Line by recycling bacon grease to make explosives. Presumably what? by experts and not just by her and her garage. But yeah, <laughs> apparently that was a thing. that You can recycle your grease because grease can make um, glycerin, I guess. And that's what is used to make you know ammunition and gunpowder and stuff like that. So Is that why people save their grease like is that how that started i doubt so, you know, it like people have like a canister under their thing well like, yeah that means so do we but like nobody eventually throw it away that's yeah. just so you don't dump it down the drain yeah, yeah. i mean you know it, it possibly could be i mean i would imagine that uh people like our grandparents age and just like, who were doing this just doing never it. stopped doing it i mean that's probably some of it you know weird yeah well i know you can re- like if you're a, a commercial like a, a commercial restaurant yeah. you can recycle grease but i don't know what yeah. that means perhaps the most disturbing short created in this period of anti-nazi films was called education for death the making of the nazi my goodness this takes a stark turn from the more quote light-hearted films and really gets <laughs> down into the damp dank darkness at the beginning of this film, a German couple proves to a Nazi German supreme judge that they are of pure Aryan blood. They hand over papers, which has like 12 generations of their friggin, you know, uh, lineage on both sides to prove that they are actually Aryan and agree to give their son, whom they name Hans, at the judge's approval, because Hans is not on a list of banned names. The son is given into the service of the Fuhrer Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. They are given a copy of Mein Kampf by the judge as a reward for their service to Hitler. Their passport contains 12 spaces 
for more children. So that was their hint of like, well, keep having more kids. Wow. In the following segment, the audience sees Hans sick and bedridden. His mother prays for him, knowing that it will only be a matter of time before the authorities come and take him away to a death camp. A Nazi officer bangs on the door to take Hans away, but his mother says he's sick and needs care. The officer orders her to heal her son quickly and have him ready to leave, implying that if Hans does not get well soon, he will be euthanized. This is in a Disney cartoon. Hans then spends the next several years marching and heiling. He reaches his teens and becomes an adult or a good Nazi, now in a Wehrmacht uniform. In the end, Hans and the rest of the German soldiers he grew up with march off to war, only to have that fade into rows of identical graves with nothing on them except a swastika and a helmet perched on top. Grim. I'm going <laughs> yeah. to find the, the silver lining about this. Okay, let's try. Sharon? Okay. Let's go. The one thing that is... Taryn is pro-German. No, I am not. Taryn is taking a stand right <laughs> no, here, No, I am not. Stop that. Yeah. I am right. not. What I'm saying is, what I like is that it's, it's, it's portraying that these soldiers, these German soldiers are being forced into this. It's yes. this or they die. Right. It's really putting all of the onus on um, Hitler, which is... Okay. A little bit of. I don't know if that's a silver lining necessarily, well, but not, maybe that's the wrong word. But that is a if if one needed to find a positive. Okay. Sure. In this, it yeah. Might I mean be that. That's what all these films were for, right? They were for American audiences to sort of have us understand the mindset of of the Nazi or whatever, right? So you know, you're not you're not wrong, and they probably obviously very much targeted that and sort of you know whatever. But watching this now, and it's on YouTube, if you want to, if you're feeling weird about yourself, go watch it. I'm feeling weird about all of this. Yeah, it's very (laughs) uncomfortable. And honestly, Uh it's sort of uncomfortable to really talk about. But it is Uh a period of history, which, again, it's the only period in history that an American movie studio was occupied by its country's forces and told to make propaganda for the war effort. So it does kind of need to be discussed, but it's war and war is naturally uncomfortable to dig into or should be at least. And this is probably why the Disney company doesn't really do much with their anti-war shorts. They were released on DVD at least one time, and that's kind of it. I have some of them uh, digitally. Uh, Maybe we'll do a Patreon only like viewing of them or something like that. I I don't know. Yeah. Weird. I mean, because not all of them are on YouTube. Some of them are. Yeah. Yeah. Two cartoons that we probably need to bring back around these days are Defense Against Invasion and Reason and Emotion. Defense Against Invasion was a live action and cartoon segment created for the U.S. government agency, which promoted vaccinations against disease. This was a highly educational segment, (laughs) providing the viewer with easy to understand information about how vaccinations work and why they are necessary. The 1945 cartoon Reason and Emotion was about encouraging the public to think logically about situations rather than be ruled completely by our emotions. The cartoon was so well done that it was nominated for an Academy Award. And I have a clippy of that as well. I mean, history does repeat itself. (laughs) It unfortunately really does, dude. Yeah, so it's literally like we're inside this guy's head. And it's like a, the uh, emotion character is a caveman. And the reason guy is, you know, almost looks like Mr. Garrison from South Park. And he <laughs> yeah. says a big head and he has a suit. And they're literally like driving this man's head. Oh, and that's what's happening right tied now. tied down all the time. 
Let's hit the high spots. Now, just control yourself. When I'm driving, there will be no nonsense. Oh, gee whiz. I want to live dangerously. Woo! Look at that. A classy dish, huh? <laughs> oh. Well, she's not bad. He's a pretty girl. Hey, slow up. Let's get acquainted with this number. We'll just go up and I'll say to her. <gasps> now, now, we must maintain proper respect for womanhood. Oh, they like the rough stuff. You're not going to pass that up. We certainly are. Now, sit down and behave yourself. Hmm, could I go for that? Here, let me handle this. Motion is a scoundrel. He bonks reason on the head and then turns the car around. Oh, no. <laughs> Hi, babe. Going my way? Boy, could I go for that? And that's what you get ha! for not listening slapped. to reason. It served him right, young lady. Oh, um, by the way. It's basically like that. I'm going to be honest with you. For a moment. <laughs> Thank you. It's basically you get hit over the head. Yeah, so now they're in the slapped. woman's head. He was oh. cute. Do you want to be an old maid? Please. Remember, we're a lady. Oh, a lady. I'm tired of sitting around being a lady. Let's have some fun. I know. Let's eat. She's in a I'm romper. Starving. Well, I'm not really hungry, but uh, we might have something light, <laughs> like uh, tea and toast. I want a club sandwich and a giant double milkshake. Oh, and... gracious, no. Think of our figure. You heard me. A club sandwich with oh, potato no. salad. But I insist. Tea and a toast. A four-decker club sandwich with cheese and ham and tuna and chicken and mayonnaise. No, 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 no. We got chocolate ice cream with whipped cream on top of the cherry. Remember, we're on a diet. I mean, I'll be honest. Thing. This kind of is my head. And for dessert, I'll have chocolate layer cake with fudge icing. Oh, dear. We shouldn't go. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's there's a graph and that just showed this poor woman's um, profile and her chin grew. Her chin was growing. It's oh, so good. Like her under chin. Yeah. But it's also like, I mean, I saw that caveman hit reason over the head to turn back to that girl. And I was like, they got us. They got all of man, <laughs> all of mankind right there. Because it is, you just get... You get taken over. You get well, bonked also, in the head, like, man. Well, also, like, the tea versus the club sandwich. I mean, I'm right there. Yeah, right. And, like, you're already planning your dessert while you're, like, before you've even gotten your, your club <laughs> sandwich. Like, I, I completely get that. Yeah. So, basically, from reason <laughs> and emotion, I get that men are always horny and women are always hungry. <laughs> yeah. And that's just what it is. Um, but, yeah. So, what does that movie remind you of? Uh, Inside Out. Inside Out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The same thing. Yeah, it's the literal same thing. <laughs> yeah. But, I don't know. Nothing dies. Truly ever at the Disney studio. <laughs> yeah. Now, the goal with all these cartoons was to empower and rally the American people against the common enemy. The best way to do that is to belittle those you're fighting against and turn them into caricatures. In Commando Duck, for example, the Japanese are voiced with a common stereotypical R's for L's speech pattern, which is sort of tame compared to the, some of the stuff that Warner Brothers was putting out. Like they had a film called Tokyo Jokio. Oh, no. it's, uh, all, it's all very, this whole period of time in cartoons was very bad. And Disney wasn't the only ones doing like anti, you know, um, uh, anti-war or anti-Japanese or anti-Nazi stuff, but they were the tamest compared to some of this other stuff. So Walt was listening to reason instead of emotion. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. One subject that was never touched on in any of the dozens and dozens of cartoons made by the Disney company during the war was the Holocaust. Actively happening during this time period, it is an omission that can be fairly obvious when looking into the reasoning behind all those propaganda films to begin with. If the government truly wanted to rally the American public behind the war effort, why not highlight the suffering of the millions of people in concentration camps? 
Jews, Greeks, gypsies, black people, too many of them children. It seems an obvious topic to touch on. Though the U.S. newspapers published reports of concentration camps and the final solution as early as November 1942, those outside of the Jewish American community didn't engage with the information on a wide scale. The audience was encouraged to have more sympathy for the main characters of the 1943 film Education for Death than the victims of the Holocaust. Hmm. Yeah, kind of uh, weird. The other reason why Disney might not have included these war crimes in his shorts was that during World War II, anti-Semitism was widespread in the U.S. with political leaders like President Roosevelt, who himself espoused anti-Semitic views, delaying the decisive action on the Holocaust to avoid accusations of pandering to Jewish interests. So Roosevelt was like, I'm not really going to do anything about this Holocaust because I don't want to make it seem like I'm pandering. Okay, thanks, dude. Yeah, all your friends will make fun of you. Yeah, how dare you? I don't you? understand how the Holocaust is even separate from the war that was going on. Like, how how is how has it become two separate things? Like, it's, that doesn't even make sense to me. It's not really separate, but it was. I think it was one of those where, like, it wasn't really fully realized for a couple of years after the war had already started. So I think maybe it is sort of segmented in in our view over here. Because, you know, I mean, like it's, so the war started in 39, but they were already doing concentration camps in like 35. Hmm. So, you know, for years before that, years before it was first published in the, in the papers over here, they had concentration camps. And um, we just didn't know about it, I guess, or at least to Weird. a wide enough degree. Right. Right. So Walt's image had long been dogged by rumors of anti-Semitism. Jewish employees at the studio and biographers alike have refuted these claims. Quote, I saw no evidence in my research other than casual anti-Semitism. Other than that, it's, you know, whatever. That virtually every Gentile at the time would have that Walt Disney was an anti-Semite, said biographer Neil Gabler during a 2015 panel. So this man has dug through his life. There's nothing like anti-Semitic about Walt except all the casual anti-Semitism that everybody did. Which isn't an excuse, but also true. I mean, you know. But also literally times were different. Yeah. Another topic never mentioned in the Disney shorts was the internment of Japanese Americans across the U.S. In February, or actually just on the West Coast, in February of 1942, which is just two months after Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066 that resulted in the removal of Japanese Americans to internment camps or, as the government called them, relocation camps. Mm -hmm. That's better. Yeah. The entire West Coast was deemed a military area and was divided into military zones. Executive Order 9066 authorized military commanders to exclude civilians from military areas. Although the language of the order did not specify any ethnic group, Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt of the Western Defense Command proceeded to announce curfews that included only Japanese Americans. Obviously, retribution for Pearl Harbor. On March 29th, 1942, under the authority of the executive order, DeWitt issued Public Proclamation Number 4, which began the forced evacuation and detention of Japanese-American West Coast residents on a 48-hour notice, giving two days to round yourself up and, and you're gone. That's it. Hmm. Only a few days prior to the proclamation on March 21st, Congress had passed Public Law 503, which made violation of Executive Order 9066 a misdemeanor pub punishable by up to one year in prison and a $5,000 fine. Jeez. Because of the perception of public danger, all Japanese Americans with varied distances from the Pacific Coast were targeted. 
unless they were able to dispose of or make arrangements for their care for their property with a few days, their homes, farms, businesses, and most of their private belongings were lost forever. That's very sad. Approximately oh, yeah. 112,000 people were sent to assembly centers, often racetracks or fairgrounds, where they waited and were tagged to indicate the location of a long-term relocation center that would be their home for the rest of the war. And these are like in Idaho and Utah, and they, you know, they're not just, they're like deep in, within California, right? Mm-hmm. Nearly 70,000 of ev- evacuees were American citizens. Of course, this included the many Japanese-American artists who worked as animators like uh, at Disney, like Chris, uh, wow, I'm reading ahead, and so I'm, anyway, uh, like Chris Ishii, who was an assistant to Ward Kimball, and also, ironically, had tried to join the U.S. military, was but, t- but was turned down for having slightly flat feet. Uh, James Tanaka and Tom Okamoto, all of whom worked for Disney on classic Disney features like Fantasia and Dumbo prior to Pearl Harbor. There were no charges of disloyalty against any of these citizens, nor was there any vehicle by which they could appeal their loss of property and personal liberty. Most lived in these conditions for nearly three years or more till the end of the war. In 1988, Congress passed and President Reagan signed Public Law 10383, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, that acknowledged the injustice of internment, apologized for it, and provided a $20,000 cash payment to each person who was incarcerated. Just a side note. Wow. Pioneering Disney illustrator Gyo Fujikawa. I couldn't even read that. I think it's Gyo. I don't know. Uh, Gyo Fujikawa was one of the lucky ones. The rare woman recognized as the studio artist at the time for Disney. Fujikawa escaped incarceration because she'd been transferred to Disney's merchandise unit in New York, where at the time the evacuation of Japanese Americans was not being detained. When Walt visited the New York office, he reportedly asked her, how are you doing? I've been worried about you. Fujikawa confided that people questioning her nationality had prompted her to blur her Japanese heritage, claiming she was part Chinese or Korean. Why do you have to do that? You're an American citizen, Walt allegedly said. Next time anybody asks you that, just tell them it's none of their business. And from that moment on, that's exactly what I told them. Disney was paid by the U.S. government to stay afloat for, his, for, for this time and in exchange for his so-called cooperation to help out the war cause for Uncle Sam. But in Disney's mind, this was tantamount to blackmail by the Roosevelt administration. Thus, the anti-Nazi bent of the propaganda cartoons that Disney made for the U.S. government during World War II reflected the more the political views of Henry Morgenthau Jr. and the Roosevelt administration rather than that of Walt Disney's point of view. Although Disney had been producing decidedly anti-war cartoons since the late 30s, the feel and tone of these cartoons produced during the war shifts dramatically once the U.S. government takes control. While most of the war effort films produced by most Hollywood studios were made for profit, Disney films were made at cost, sometimes less, uh, no matter what Roy thought. Um, (laughs) always budget conscious footage already in the can was recycled for example when animation of rain was needed the thunderstorm footage for bambi was utilized oh wow so that's also how they sort of cranked out all these you know all these shorts in such amount of time yeah (laughs) after the war ended in 1945 the cast strap walt announced we're going we're, we're through with caviar from now on it's mashed potatoes and gravy that's all he ever ate, let's be honest. I know, right? <laughs> was there caviar? <laughs> yeah, I suppose this is sort of means like it's an end to guaranteed work and contracts with a set pay rate 
far above market rate and they're going to have to start earning their own money again. Desperately needing a hit, Walt centered on his ideal subject matter of folksy Americana instead of European folktales like Snow White. Now, perhaps this was the influence of the war, or perhaps he wanted to ride that wave of positivity and goodwill that the Disney company received for their help in supplying moral, uh, su- supplying morale in various ways for not only the troops, but the general public as well. Walt began work on what was probably his most controversial film right after the war, though only in years later was it so controversial, in a little picture called Song of the South. Oh, jeez. He's <laughs> so, just digging that hole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Disney scholar Gerard Ratty suggests that, quote, if it weren't for the U.S. military and obviously by extension World War II, the Walt Disney Company might not exist today. The compensation the studio received from these contracts may have been the reason that Walt Disney Studios recovered from the economic turmoil of the late 30s and early 40s. Wow. That's it. That's, I mean, that's, that sounds true. Yeah. That I buy it. I, I mean, it yeah. sounds true to me too. But it is hard to, it's hard to listen to. It's hard to, especially that the first film he made afterwards was Song of the South. I'm just like, oh my God, it just, it's so cringy. Time to bounce back. <laughs> yeah, let's right? bounce back. Let's, let's go back to the time of slavery. Yeah. Let's, when we just made a bunch of had yeah, 30 shorts about up. like, we need freedom and to protect our freedoms and whatever. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah. yeah. All right guy yeah let's bring it back home (laughs) yeah i don't know jeez louise taryn you have something to say i do i swear by the moon and the stars (laughs) and the sky our friendly friends at the 21st amendment brewery welcome the cooler weather with the release of two great tasting beers a brand new ipa and a perennial holiday favorite Brew-free or die-cold, IPA is a new fresh style of IPA showcasing a bright, bold, hop-forward flavor and aroma. Brew-free or die-cold, IPA. <laughs> That's what it says. It's a cold, it's cold IPA. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. That's all, Taryn. It's a cold read, and I'm just teasing you. That's it's all. cold IPA a cold style? Cold IPA, yes. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard of that style in I my know. life. Yeah, it's new. So brew-free. See, now I'm screwed Bre- up. Brew-free or cool, d'appetit. I thought it was like brew free or die cold. Yeah, no. IPA. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so it's, that, now it's, you can understand so why I'm laughing at you. Yeah. So it's brew free or die I'd buy that. Cold, cold IPA. IPA. <laughs> right. Got it. Yep. All right. Continue, please. What is a cold IPA? I got to know now. We got to finish the read first, and I'll tell you. If you're All a good right. girl, I'll tell you. Brew free or. Brew free or cold, die IPA. <laughs> brew free or die, cold IPA is a new, fresh style of IPA showcasing a bright, bold, hop-forward flavor and aroma. They took the aggressive hop notes you want in a West Coast IPA and wrapped it around an American lager for maximum drinkability. There you go. Uh, now Ch- you know what it is. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Chicook? Chicook? Chinook. Chin- oh, there's missing N. Oh, uh, Sully. Uh, Chinook, Centennial, and Mosaic hops do the heavy lifting, <laughs> and at 6.5% ABV, it's Sully's new favorite beer, and it should be yours, too. It's also the holiday season, and their winter spiced ale fireside is back. This winter warmer has a deep toffee. This winter warmer has a deep toffee color, sweet candy malt notes with soft spices and a cocoa finish. The Twenty First Amendment has reimagined the look of their award-winning fireside chat this year with two reindeer sitting in comfy chairs in front of a roaring fireplace with goblets of fireside chat while Santa's elves are outside in the snow, 
peering into this quaint holiday setting. And at 7.9 ABV, it will surely make your holiday season a bit more festive and warm. Be sure to ask for the 21st Amendment wherever great beer is sold. Look for brief... <laughs> Look for Brew Free or Die Cold IPA and Fireside Chat at 21st Amendment wherever great beer is sold. You can also find the location of their beer at their website at 21stamendment.com. Wait, 21st-amendment.com on the Find Some page. Very good, Taryn. Eh, I love... Sort of good. I love Die PA. <laughs> Brief Free and Die IPA. Yeah. Cold Free and Live. <laughs> I don't know, man. Brew Free or Die. Brew Free yeah. or Die. See, I, knew, or die. I know that. Which Brew is their classic line. Yeah, Brew Free or Die. So they IPA. made that into a cold IPA. Cold IPA. Yeah, so it's just like a more easy drinking IPA. Um, you know, it's like a... Big ass lager kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. I know we got to get some too. Sully keeps saying, oh, you guys need to come out and get some. I'm like, well, that's my Sully impression. I go, oh, I don't know. Oh, we got to do it. And then we never do it. Fireside Chat is always a good one too. That's I, great. I, when we used to have our holiday party, it would, for some stupid reason, would be the one that I would grab at the end of the night. Oh, yeah. And it's such a bad idea. Oh. I've After you've had wine and beer and shots, and then let's grab a 7.9% beer that's really yeah. heavy. Well, always good. Sam always, a good always decision. brings it. Yes, yeah. and they always came late. And then, yes. They always came late, and we always had one in the fridge that <laughs> I would leave deliberately in the fridge all year until next year and hand it back to them. Actually, we still have one, in there and we still have one because from the year even more than I think Three we came from. Th- no, I think we came from Concord with that. We brought it here. I think. Why would we do that? Because I'm insane. It should not be in our main fridge. Then we can put it in the other fridge. No, it lives there. <laughs> it lives there until Sam comes back and drinks it. Oh my god. Uh, anyway, that's it. We're gonna get out of here. I realize we never took a break, so I'll have to cut one of those in. Mm. Which would be fine, well, I think you did a great show. I think that was um, really interesting information. I'm not going to lie. A little uncomfortable at times. It um, was, huh? Not because of you, just because of well, the, no. the content. Of but also, you know what? It did happen. It It's not a reflection of us. See, it that's the history. thing. It happened. And exactly. you got to talk about it. So hopefully it won't repeat itself. Uh, but we all know how that works. I don't know. It's important to learn. Because if you don't, if you don't learn it, if you don't, then you sort of like hold disney as like on this pedestal of it can do no wrong and it's like i don't know man this whole time period was weird for walt like when we get into the the animator strike like he screwed that up yeah roy saved his ass on that one well yeah and uh yeah so it's just stuff like that where you know and and walt what are you gonna do man you're you're, perfect you're running out of money you have you're you're gonna lose your company you're gonna get in bed with the government You, you there's no you have so you have no choice of course so, and it was the right choice for yeah. him. Yeah, and like I said, if you if you want to judge Disney on the cartoons that he made at this time, go look at like Warner Brothers cartoons, <laughs> they, like Popeye cartoons. Like they're bad. Yeah, they're bad, man. Yeah, weird. At least weird he stuff. showed some restraint. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely. There's still a Disney bend to it. Reason was driving. <laughs> That's true. All right, everyone. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I appreciate it. And if uh, you're listening live. Um, I think we'll do a walkabout. Let's maybe Saturday night. Saturday night. Yeah, let's do Saturday night. That good? Eric, you want to join? Mm, uh, actually, no, we're going out for dinner on Saturday good. night. So I don't want you here anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody, for tuning in. And until next time, we'll see you in the parks. 